chapter 10, verses 1 through, or chapter 12, sorry, verses 1 through 10. All right. It says, I must go on both. is when the paper Bible is better. It's because I just took it off the keyboard. Okay. Okay, it says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to the visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. But he heard things and ca- that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But not on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking in the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given, given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weaknesses. In weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We are in part seven of our series on the distinctives of what our church stands for, and um, we're almost at the end of that. But today's message is especially important and one that is very dear to my heart and very crucial in what I think makes for a strong gospel-centered church and has very important ramifications, implications of what a church should look like and feel like and what the the quality of the relationship should be like and it comes about through this subject of weakness. I'm going to talk about this passage and this subject in three parts. Part one, the facade of our strength and competence. The facade, you know that word facade meaning this thing that we put on, this face that we put on before others, the facade of our strength and competence. Part two, the power of Christ and real strength through weakness, which is what Paul is talking about here, especially in verses 9 and 10. And part three, the strength of God through the weakness of the cross. 
to the weakness of the cross. Um, part one, the facade of our strength and competence. Um, I, do you guys notice, okay, uh, let me just start this way. Someone comes up to you and says, hi, how are you? What's the answer? You know what the answer is? You all know what the answer is, right? Fine, thank you. And you? <laughs> That's the answer. That's, it's, it's such a commonplace thing that we do in our culture. If somebody asks you a question, how are you? You already know the answer. Everybody knows the answer. The answer is, I'm fine. Fine, thank you. And how are you? Now, of course, it, it's, I, I've thought about this, and, I, and I've thought about this many times in, in, in our culture. When somebody asks you, how are you, they're actually not asking you, how are you, right? <laughs> they're actually saying just, hi. Hi. And your answer, you're just, and when you say this thing, fine, thank you, how are you? You're really not saying, fine, thank you, how are you? You're not actually answering a question. You're just saying, hi, back. It's just a convention. But I want you to just think about what the convention says. All our habits and conventions in any culture says something about the culture. It really does. Whatever we do habitually says something about us. And if the convention in the culture is, how are you, which is actually a significant question, but the answer is this phony answer of, I'm fine. And this is what we're supposed to do. It's a habitual thing that we're supposed to do all the time. You know what we're basically saying? It's normal in our culture to put on a happy face. Now, in America, we say, I just want authenticity. And yet the habitual thing that we do is phony. Um, in a church like ours, which is this kind of predominant, there's a lot of Asians in this church, it's an immigrant church, not every culture quite does it this way, but actually Asian churches do the similar thing, this facade, they do it more intensely. It's actually darn near a rule, an unspoken rule, right into the culture. And anthropologists have a name for it. They call it face culture. It's the culture of face. And what it means is when you go out into society and you meet other people, you have to put on a face. <laughs> and what is that face? It is the face that I'm a good person and I'm fine. So in America, when we ask, how are you? And then you say, fine, thank you. That's the American way of doing it. But in the Asian way of doing it, it's, 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 we, we call it a face culture. And in the face culture, you can't say that you can't let stuff out because that's that that are weak, that are shameful, that are bad. Um, anthropologists say that the face culture is based upon honor and shame. You go out into society and you present the good face. And if you do things that are well, I act good, I say good things, I show you the good things from my heart. From my heart, or at least I pretend that are in my heart. And then they are, and then people honor you. But if you let people know there's real rage inside of you, anger, jealousy, greed, depression, shame, then you will be shamed. And people won't know what to do with this. Like, oh, it's like, or if it's bad enough, they will ostracize you and kick you out. And you won't belong. And so in Asian culture, guess what? There's intense fear of not putting on the face. 
Um, there, there's a book that I love. I, I, I love, it's called You Gotta Have Wah. <laughs> because it, it, it combines two things in, that I love in, um, to do. One is study culture. And it's about Japanese culture. Wah means harmony. And it's a book about baseball. That's the other thing I love. <laughs> it's one of the other great things I love in the world. And in that book, it says, you got to have wah. And it was my way to understand Japanese culture through the lens of baseball. And one of the things it talked about was it talked about hone and tatame. And you know what that was? I forget which is which. I think tatame is the face that you put on for the world. And hone is your real feelings, your real heart. What's really going on inside there? I mean, they even have a name for it. That's how intense it is in Japanese culture. But of course, Koreans get this, Chinese get this. Almost all, well, pretty, almost all cultures actually understand it. Even the non-American culture, we don't call ourselves a face culture, but we do it too. In this is one of these things about human life that I personally find frustrating. But if it's in a church, I'm really frustrated. <laughs> Let me put it to you this way. If you go to a church and people put on a facade and they put on the face because they cannot let weakness come out, let me tell you something. That's not a church I want to go to. If I go to the church, they have all the right doctrines. I've, I've been to churches like this. The doctrine is just spot on correct. All the things that are said is exactly right. I mean, I don't want to go to a church where they teach the wrong doctrine. Like, I guess, ah, wrong doctrine. It's like, okay, this stinks. Okay? But I've been to churches where the doctrine is spot on correct. Everything is theologically right. And they are completely buttoned up with the face, facade, I'm okay, you're okay. I will never go to that church. If I go to that church, if I go, if I go to that church, I'm like, no. God is not in this place. Forget this church. No. Let me talk about this passage. Um, uh, Paul, <laughs> this is a, it's a really crazy passage. If there are lots of strange things in the Bible, this is one of them. I mean, this is, whoa, it's out there. <laughs> It, this just 2 Corinthians chapter 12 it is a really out there passage. By the way, I love these out there passages. If you haven't noticed, your pastor likes the, these radioactive, crazy passages. This is one of them. And this is one of the passages in the Bible that makes me know that the Bible is from God. Because nobody else says this kind of stuff. Okay? Um, you, you're not going to. You're not going to get this. You're not going to get this type of teaching from the Quran, from the Bhagavad Gita. You sure as heck aren't going to get it from some kind of secular philosopher. You're not going to. Whether it's an ancient or a modern. Second Corinthians chapter twelve is only in the Bible, <laughs> and it can only come from the Gospel. And you're sitting there going, well, "What the heck is he talking about?" It is really weird. So Paul. So let me give you a little background. I, I actually thought, but maybe we should go back because so, we're jumping right into the middle of something he's saying. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is, is, a, is actually the, the concluding portion of an argument that Paul is having. And Paul is having an argument with the church that he planted. He started this church. But there's something going on in this church. 
The Corinthian church is full of smart people. The city of Corinth is, is a city full of commerce, and it's multi-ethnic, and it's, it's a global city. And the people are full of gifts and talents. And there's a divide of rich and poor. All these things are going on inside the church. But as this church is seemingly, it's starting to flourish. It's growing. But somewhere along the line, they turned on Paul. They said, Paul, hey, you're not as good a preacher as this other guy. I think this guy's humbler than you, and he's more holy than you. And when he leads us, our church grew. You planted the church, and then this other guy came along, our church grew. Are you really even one of the real apostles? And so there is an attack, there is a, a faction in the Corinthian church that's saying, Paul, you, you don't got it enough going on. You're not a holy enough guy. And so Paul, you know what his answer is? Actually, much of the whole book of 2 Corinthians is his answer to what he knows of the gospel and why he is, why he has spiritual authority. And in the middle of 2 Corinthians is this whole issue that I talked to you about last week, which is boasting. And he says, look, if you just boast in how big the church is, how smart you are, and all these, all, of all your spiritual gifts, you don't get it. You really don't get it. But if you want me to, I can boast. Okay, so I'm going to boast. I'm an idiot for doing this. And so actually in the previous chapters, he, he starts telling the things he goes... I know more Bible than you. I come from the right stock. I've gone to prison. I've been stoned. I've been whipped. I've been shipwrecked. I've been... The Jews are trying to murder me. The Romans are trying to murder me. Can any of you guys boast of this? I can. That's what he starts saying. And then he gets to this then he really raises the bar. I know a guy, and he's talking about himself. I know a guy, I'm not sure if it was in his body or not in his body, but he was caught up to paradise. That's, he's talking about himself. And he swears this. I think he does this because he's almost trying to say, if you're just talking about me, I wouldn't talk about this. But if I'm going to talk about this guy, let me talk about him like he's somebody else, although I'm talking about me. If I'm talking about him, that is a guy who can boast. I mean, he went to heaven. He heard things you can't even say. He saw things you can't describe. He knows things none of you know. I know things none of you know. I heard things you will, you, come on. So if I'm talking from that guy's perspective, I'm better than you. That's what he's saying. But now let me talk about myself. I'm just going to talk about things that are weak. In me, I will boast in the things that are weak. And then he goes on to say this thing. and says, this thing that I saw was so tremendous that it would make me conceited. And by the way, that is just the way it is in the world. If anything, that you get anything good in the world, and the better and bigger and higher it is, it is just completely, utterly normal. This is how you know that human beings are utterly rotten and depraved. We become conceited and arrogant jerks. And that is even if, if that's within your faith. <laughs> so if you get great things even in your faith, 
there's a powerful problem of being conceited. By the way, I, I, I've been in, in lots of churches. First service this morning, I, I, I thought it was just particularly right to be able to say this to first service. There was only six people in first service this morning. I was like, like this is a small group, and we look like a weak church. I've been to plenty of small churches, and I've been to big churches. Almost every small church I've ever been to, they feel like they're weak. Many of them feel ashamed just because they're small. And because they're small, they feel poor. Oh, we're poor. That's why we're weak. Almost none of them are conceited. (laughs) I've been to the big churches. They got the building, they got the band, they got the great orator up front. They got great systems and great programs and lots of shiny, happy people running around the building. And you know what? All those things are great. But in a lot of those churches, you know what I also feel? Conceit. It's in the building. We're a good church because we have the building. Because we got, the, we got the happy people. Because we got the great programs. Because we got the money. Because we got the great band. Because we got the great leader. Conceit. Paul's got us all beat. <laughs> I know stuff from God. <laughs> I went to heaven. That's not it, though. And he says, in order to keep me from this conceit, God sent a thorn in the flesh. That's the way he put it. And many scholars... And pastors have speculated on this thing. He doesn't actually tell you what it is. I remember an old Bible study teacher telling me, he's like, some think that he might have had a problem with his eyes. So maybe it was a physical problem. Some thought he might have had some kind of chronic physical ailment. But actually, I'm not even sure if that's the case because he says it is a messenger from Satan. <laughs> so think about this. God, Paul is one of the godliest men that's ever walked this planet. <laughs> He has done things that endured things for Jesus that you or I cannot even dream of doing so. And yet God says, for you, I'll let a messenger of Satan chronically, chronically afflict you. Just on there. Would you like to walk through your life with a messenger of Satan? <laughs> Paul did. And this messenger of Satan on him. I, I read this, I've been, I've been reading this passage and reading this passage and reading this passage all week long going, <laughs> I'm a pastor. Jesus, we don't need that one. No thanks. And he said, I prayed to the Lord three times, can you take this off? And then the answer to this is one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible, verse 9. This is what Jesus said to me. My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is perfected, is completed. My power is perfect in your weakness. Um, I have... Any time I've ever gotten dark in my life, this verse comes to me. Sometimes I don't even want it, (laughs) to be honest with you. I don't even want this verse. 
Because there are times, this is the verse that I call the anti-zap theology. I have this term that I call zap theology. If you have an affliction or a weakness or a hardship in your life, you know what you and I pray for? I know you do this because I do this too. We all do this. We go, God, snap your fingers and zap me, man. <laughs> zap it. Fix it. <laughs> Just, you're, you're, you're powerful. Boom, zap me and, and, and I'll be good. Can't you do that, God? Just do that for me, please. If you really love me, you'll zap me. And there are times in my life I wish zap theology was, was right. <laughs> it's like, come on, God. Some zapping happened here. We need some zap here. Okay? But whenever I want this God to snap his finger and just fix something and I'm in this place of hurt and weakness, I remember this verse. I don't think it's because I'm Mr. Holy and I just remember it. It's because the Holy Spirit shows up and says, Susang, remember? <laughs> Here are the words of Jesus. My grace is sufficient for you. <laughs> it, it gets crazier. Verse 10. I, I, I read this again and again this week. Verse 10. Listen to this. For the sake of Christ, for Jesus... This is for, for Jesus. For Jesus, I am content. I am content. That's a word that is very, very foreign to we Americans. We're not a contented people. We're a very discontented people. We're always running, hustling, moving. Can't even sit still. We've we got to have 100 channels. We've got to have the internet at any, any given moment because we don't have any idea what content is like. If it's just quiet for five minutes, that's all we can take. And he goes, I am content, and that's not even more, because I am content with weakness, with weaknesses, with insults. I read this, I said, okay, well, sometimes I think I can be content with my weakness. Okay. Just, just a couple of them. Uh, just a little bit of baby holiness in me that I think I can go there. I, I, I read this one. Insults. I am content with insults. <laughs> I'm thinking, no. <laughs> the last time I perceived somebody insulted me, I, I, I started having evil thoughts of like fantasies of like horrible things. I was like, yes, and maybe you will walk down the street and a safe will drop on top of your head. That would be a good day. Yes. I do think these things. And worse. So you better be, think twice before you, you insult me. <laughs> think twice before you insult me. These things happen inside of me. Uh, and then I give you my face. <laughs> okay? I mean, I try to make the face as real as it can be. Because that's why I want real holiness in me, so that the face will be real. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> okay, this is just a bonus. I, I wasn't planning to, to, to do this, but I did in the first service, so I'll throw this out. You know, I didn't plan it in my notes. Um, a couple brothers in the church mentioned to me this new TV show, Fresh Off the Boat. Any of you guys still watch the show? I have yet to see it. Okay. Some people say it's good. 
And it's about a Taiwanese family, moved down to Orlando. Dad opens a steak restaurant to get the American dream. And it's about being Chinese in Orlando and feeling weird all the time. That's, I think that's what it's about, fresh off the boat. I said, oh, these brothers, they're making it sound interesting. So I read a review. The review sounded good. They actually talked about the book being good. I'm like, oh, I'm a book guy. The book is probably better. So I ordered the book. I started reading this book. And it's written by Eddie Huang, who apparently is famous. He's some famous chef now who started a restaurant. And he tells a story that when he was seven years old, um, <laughs> it's crazy because he said he was the Asian kid, and then there was a black kid, and everybody else in the, in the class was white. The black kid called him the CH word, chink. Sorry for that. And, and he went into a rage. And he grabbed the, the kid's arm, I think it was in the cafeteria, shoved it into the microwave and slammed the microwave door on the kid's arm and just started pounding on him. Insults. Apparently, Eddie Huang doesn't know about the contentment with insults. I can relate. <laughs> I never, you know, went William Wallace, that's the term he used. I went, William, it made me go William Wallace on this kid. I still do, he says. And apparently for the next few years, he just started having fights. He got, he said, they said he went to like five, five schools in seven years. <laughs> okay, fresh off the boat, okay. Contentment with weak insults, how about you? How about hardships? I think of hardships as tough stuff that happened to me. Weakness is the thing that's messed up inside of me. That's how I see, or on me. Um, persecutions. It's not, it's not, come on. I mean, you know, you get insulted for being a Christian. I don't think we can call that persecution. That's just, that's an insult. Insult and persecution are two separate things. Yes, we can get insulted for being a Christian. You can just be insulted for, you know, not being pleasing to the sight to somebody, okay? But persecution, we have brothers and sisters. It's in the news, actually, regularly nowadays. Certain people get their heads chopped off just because they're Christians. He says he can be content with them. And this last word, I am content with calamities. I mean, he didn't just say hard stuff. Calamities. If a calamity were to come into your life, do you have the resources to come back with content? Do you? And then it come out, not as a facade. Weakness, insult, persecution, calamity, and then not a facade, real, real face, come out with contentment. Can you do that? It is my hope my prayer that through Jesus we would have a community where people can become like this. And nothing less. I actually, that's, that's what I want for our church. If we have a big, bustling church full of lots of money and shiny, happy people, but we're not like this, or at least some of us aren't like this, I would say, that's not the church I, I pray for, Jesus. This is a church I long for. It says right here, right here. This is from your infallible book, isn't it? <laughs> infallible. 
Come on, Jesus. I want to know this. Part two of my message. The power of Christ and real strength through weakness. Um, I said to you earlier that I don't want to go to a church where it's just, how are you? Fine, thank you, happy. Face culture. I don't want to go to that church. I'm serious, I don't want to go to that church. If I went to a church like that and every church in my city was like that, I would either start another church or move. I'm not kidding. I would either start another church or move. I don't care if it's a mega church. I don't want to go to, I don't want to, go to a church like that. Now, the fact is, even in the mega churches, there's probably some pocket of place where this is like this real weakness. That's my favorite place in the church. And in our church, at New Hope Church, and we have this to some extent, but I only want this to grow more and more. We have this, we have a value. One of our ministry values in New Hope Church is that we practice an ethic of transparency and vulnerability. <laughs> and I want this to be in our church. It's one of the reasons I'm not afraid to stand up here and tell you how I suck. Why I hurt. I don't come up here planning to cry, but if it happens, I'm not ashamed. Because this is real. It's real. What's vulnerability? All of us, we all hate being vulnerable. We're Americans, come on. You can't go out there and be vulnerable. Vulnerable. You know what vulnerable is? What's vulnerable, Pastor? Vulnerable, some of you are like, oh, what's vulnerable? Some of you are so in denial of vulnerable, you don't even want to, what's vulnerable? Vulnerable is like this. You have a wound. See, if, the, if your whole body is fine, but you have, a, you have a serious bruise right here, or if you have a, you're bleeding out of your side, that's the place you're vulnerable. So you're going to always stand forward and present this part of your body because that's the part of your body that's strong. That's the same thing. It's just facade. But the place you're vulnerable, if somebody touches you there, it'll hurt. If someone brushes you, if somebody even just pokes it, even slightly, it'll, 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 you'll cry out. That's vulnerable. We're all like this. In the church, if we have community group, and I believe community group is absolutely essential. In community group, on Sunday morning, you just have lunch and coffee with each other. You're just run-of-the-mill conversations, even the way you email each other. If vulnerability and transparency, not facade, facade is not transparency. That's the opposite. That's fake. It's hiding. The, the American way is we call it privacy. That's private. Okay, that's, that's, that's garbage. I'm not saying there's nothing that's really private. Of course things are private. But if you use privacy to hide, you don't believe this. You don't believe this. You can't be a leader in our church. I want every leader in our church to believe in this. To seek this. So if you go to church... There'll be people, some of you, some of us, 
who are depressed. There are people in this church, I'm not going to name any names, of course, who I know take medication for depression. There's some who are angry. Some of you. I'm not talking about somebody in some other church. Right here, right now. Angry. Not a little bit of anger. A lot of anger. There are people in our midst who are, have the weakness of financial weakness. So there's all kinds of weakness. There's emotional weakness. That's anger, depression. There's physical weakness. We have brothers and sisters with that. We even have mental weakness. There is um, someone in the church, I won't say who this person is, um, has shared with me and my wife that this person has OCD issues, habits of OCD. That's a bit, that's a kind of mental weakness. You know that? You can look it up straight there in the DSM-4, the Manual of Mental Illness, (laughs) OCD. It'll come on up there, Obsessive Compulsive Disorder Habits. It'll come up right up there. And I love this person for sharing this. Because that's what a gospel-filled church is like. There's weakness. And there's others. In the history of this church, um, I know of folks who have had anorexia. I know some people who are burdened down with tremendous amounts of guilt. Um, there, is a, there are people I've met. I have met men who convinced an ex-girlfriend to have an abortion. It still eats them. They became a Christian. It eats them. Raw. Gnaw, right? Just gnaws at them. Weakness. And of course, there's others. Addiction. Some of you are addicted to ice cream. When there's no ice cream in our house, I am not happy. (laughs) For some of you, you need a little harder stuff than that. You can't function unless you get some harder stuff. And some of you, it's porn. You can't go two weeks or a month without looking at that stuff. Weakness. And if this can't come out in a church, then we don't know the gospel. This is a very important application of faith. If you don't believe, if you believe in the gospel, Christ came for sinners. Sinners have weakness. Sinners are beset with weakness. And if it can't come out, then what kind of church is that? Let me say one more thing before I go to two stories and then I'll close my message. Okay? If the church is perfect, everybody's perfect. They're all perfect. I'm good. You're good. We got the money. We got everything going on. Good. It's not a good church. 
Jesus, how do you know if Jesus is there? It's actually the power of God, the power of Jesus' power is not being perfected in that church because it's all based on man. But when the people have enough faith to trust in Jesus in weakness, then Jesus is there. That's, that's, that's what we're talking about. Let me tell you two stories, and I'll go to the third and final portion of my message, and we'll close. A number of years ago, before I came here to be the pastor again, second time around, for those of you who don't know, this is my second time around at this church, um, we were in the East Coast, and I was asked to be a, a guest preacher at my friend's church. Um, it was somewhere in New Jersey. Churches, it wasn't a big church. Maybe there were roughly about 100 some odd, 100, 120 adults in the service that morning. Churches, maybe about 80% Caucasian, and maybe 15% Asian, and 5% miscellaneous. <laughs> okay? I don't know, okay? That's kind of what the church was like. Middle to upper middle class in a well-to-do neighborhood. And I preached, and in my sermon that day, um, I shared that we were just a few years out of marital counseling. And, you know, this was at a period in our life when my wife and I, our marriage was getting strong, but we were only maybe about two or three years out of our marriage, marriage counseling. And I stood in front of everybody and I told people, a few years ago, we were really in serious trouble. I'm so thankful that the Lord took us through some biblical marital counseling and our marriage is getting strong. And I begged the people, I, I begged them, I said, I beg you now, if you are in, in trouble, please, please, please go to marital counseling and share with some of your other brothers and sisters here in the church and ask them to pray for you and support you as you do this. After the service was over, um, a woman in her, a Caucasian woman, well-educated Caucasian woman in her late 50s came up to me. She was in tears. And she said, Pastor, I can't believe you shared what you shared. I've been begging my husband. We've been married for 25 years. I've been begging my husband for the last at least 10 years to go to marital counseling. And today, just as the service ended, he turned to me and said, okay, let's go. Thank you. And after she said that to me, I was like, I just got paid. <laughs> That's how I get paid, guys. See? Not in our strength, in our weakness. I'll tell you another story. My brother, my brother has a set of friends from high school. He had a large group of homeboys who he's still close to. They still periodically get together. A number of them, not all of them now, live nearby, but they still like to gather together for reunions. There are roughly about 12 guys. I think most of them were Asian. Um, I think most of them were Chinese. I think there was one Japanese guy, a couple of Korean guys. <clears throat> 
And uh, in a school that was mostly white, okay, this is a Saratoga high school, um, late 80s, early 90s. This is my brother. And when he was going to school with his, his, uh, his friends, he was the only Christian out of these dozen guys. He was the only one. And then they went off to college, and one of his friends, who didn't believe in Jesus, although the guy grew up going to, he used to go to Catholic church, he, he grew up Catholic, didn't believe in Jesus. Then went off to college, I think he went to Berkeley, and he had a friend who invited him to some Christian fellowship, and then he went to the Christian fellowship, and he got saved. Got saved, got baptized, and he had this intensity of his faith. So he started going around and telling everybody about Jesus. Oh, you got to meet Jesus, you got to meet Jesus. So then he goes back home to his old homeboys, and he starts telling them about Jesus, and they all got mad at him. They all got offended. He's like, you're an idiot. So what do you know about God? And, and then he's like, oh, gosh, okay, they're getting all angry at me. So now there was two out of 12 guys. And then um, a number of years later, when my brother was in his 20s, uh, one of his other friends started dating a woman who's Christian. And this is really hilarious to me. She started hanging out with the group because you, you guys know what it's like. You, know, you start dating somebody and then you, have to, you start bringing that girlfriend into your, friend, into your group of friends. So she started hanging out in this group of friends when they were in their 20s. And my brother actually pulled her aside one day and said, Hey, he's not a Christian and you are a Christian. You're not supposed to be dating him. <laughs> he actually said that to his friend's girlfriend. And when he told me that, I said, You said that to her? He goes, Yeah. I said, I was like, Good, good job. <laughs> I said, wow, that's a guts. And you really were a real brother in the Lord to her. And I don't know if it was my brother's fault, but not long, too long later, she broke up with him. She broke up with, so actually, so his friends started going to church with her, and then he came to faith and, and became a Christian while they were still dating, and then he got baptized and then not long after he got baptized, she dumped him and broke up with her. him. That was wild. And then so my brother told me this, and I said, oh, so I think I worried about it. So I was really joyful that his friend got saved. So he's a guy that I knew, you know, he's kind of like a younger brother. You know, the friends of your younger brother are like punks to you, but, you know, now they're a little older. But, so, oh, so I was joyful that he got, he got saved. And then he said, and then I said, wait a second, is he still going to church? Does he still believe in Jesus? He says, yeah, he, he really got saved. He's, he's mad at his ex-girlfriend, but it didn't make him quit church. In fact, I think it's actually making him more serious about Jesus. I said, whoa. And a few years later, he met another woman who was a godly Christian woman, and they got married. And occasionally now, so I think a couple years ago, I went to a birthday party with my nep for my nephew, and I saw this guy, and I met his wife, and I was thinking about this while I met his wife. I was like, oh, you're the girlfriend who became the wife after he got dumped by the other girlfriend. Ah, that's what I was thinking. So now, there's three out of 12 guys. And so you guys know what this is like. So before, there was only one Christian. He's not going to talk about Jesus because they'll all tell you know, my brother. He's not gonna, they'll say, oh, you're, like, don't give us that religion stuff. Be quiet, right? And then there was two, and then everybody got mad at the second guy. And now there's three out of 12. And you guys know what this is like. Hey, I went to church last week, blah, blah, blah. And then off and running, it's a conversation about God. And while these 12 guys were, well, I don't know if it was all, it might have been eight, might have been seven. One of the guys mentioned 
that he did something at church. And then the other guy went into his secular, cynical rant. He says, oh, Christianity. You know why people are Christians? Because they're weak. So that's why they need this, this fairy tale of some God that will love you. And you just need this little comfort and go to church because you're weak. That's what he said. That's what Christianity is. And a couple of the other guys that start nodding their head and going, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's, yeah, that's what I think, too. That's what I think. And you, and you guys know how within, when you have a group like this, you're not equally close to every single one. One of the guys in the group, who I believe is Japanese-American, and most of you should know Japanese are not close to Jesus for the most part. One of the guys in this group who is Japanese pulled my brother aside. He goes, hey, you know what that guy was saying? You know, last, you know, in the last 30 minutes ago about, about Christianity, he pulled my brother aside and says, that's what I used to think. I don't anymore. That's wrong. I know that's not true. He says, I've been around Christians now. And what I've found is they're some of the strongest people I know. They go through something hard, but they have strength. So I know that what he just said, that's BS. It's not true. If people are Christians, it can't be for that reason. Let me tell you something. This is how people know there's something else going on. We have weakness, and yet there's a strength that doesn't make sense. This is what I want all our friends and our neighbors to taste when they come to our church. Let me close, close my message here. The strength of God through the weakness of the cross. You know why we all have to go to weakness? Because that's the way God likes it. God went to weakness to give us his strength. In order to, do, to close my message, what I'm going to do, I thought what I'd do is I'd like to read you an excerpt of something I wrote. I wrote this discipleship material um, to train some of our people. I wrote this not too long ago, a year and a half ago. And I was reviewing it, and I thought this was appropriate to close the message this way. Listen up. How do you get the strength in your weakness? You know where it comes from? It comes from the cross. That's where it comes from. And this lesson that I'm going to read from is about the cross. At the foot of the cross, we find the omnipotent omniscient, almighty God, condemned and broken. He has gone to hell in our place. All our sins are laid on him. All our wretchedness, guilt, and shame. Moreover, all of the fallenness and cursedness which flow from our sin are in Jesus too. Our pains, our misery, our disappointments, failures, hurts, and losses... All that is on Jesus, and he willingly bore it all. That means because of the gospel, the cross is the place where whenever we are hurting, whenever, where, whenever we are in great pain, whenever we are at our wit's end and at the end of our rope, when we are in deep sorrow, 
When we feel that hope is gone, when our resources are utterly depleted and our lives are in shambles, the cross is a place we can go and know that Jesus is, will be there with us and for us. He won't be angry. He's not impatient. At the cross, he's not there to scold, but to meet us filled with mercy and grace. At the cross and because of the cross, Jesus can even withstand our anger at God. I told you, some of us are angry, even at God. He can withstand our anger at God, our blame of God, our bitterness, our stubbornness, our pride, our fighting, screaming, biting, wrestling with Him, because He has atoned for it all. Jesus is not afraid of being with us in the shambles. The mental shambles, the emotional shambles, the financial shambles. Jesus does not flinch at how wretched we are and how hard we are to love. How stupid, how stiff-necked, how unyielding and hard-hearted we can be. If we have given our lives to Him, we are His forever. When our lives break and the bottom drops out, it will only, we will only once again, from faith, in faith, from faith for faith, if we will only believe in the gospel yet again. And go meet Jesus at the foot of the cross in the midst of all the wreckage, not by any miraculous signs or by our wisdom, but by His grace, then we'll be encountering the real God. When we are in such a hard place, we too often think that God is very far away. Isn't that how you feel? When you stink, or when you're weak, when you've blown all your money, you feel that God is far away. But it's not true. Actually, He is ever so near meeting us with all his mercy, kindness, compassion, and understanding at the cross of Christ. At the cross we find in the face of Christ nothing less than the face of God turned to us filled with mercy, grace, and unbreakable, steadfast love. The gospel absolutely heralds the cross of Christ. Christ's cross is radically powerful. It can bring life to the darkest and most death-filled place. It can stream light into the darkest and blackest hearts. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be in awe of His cross. To follow Him to the cross, to embrace the divine radioactive power of the cross, to go meet Him at the cross. Without the cross, a Christian is weak and powerless. But when he has utterly embraced the cross, you can be weak you can be insulted. You can be persecuted. You can be in a calamity. But if you've embraced the cross, you and I as Christians cannot be beaten even by hell itself. That's how we'll be strong. Believe this. This is the gospel. Let's pray.
want to take a moment now and pray for you. All of you sitting here. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for you if you're sitting here in weakness and in hurt or in shame. Lord Jesus, would anybody hearing this message, especially my dear beloved who are sitting right here in this room, would they hear from you right now through your spirit? You're there. You are there. You're not at your closest when they're having all the fuzzy, wuzzy feelings of feeling like I'm a good Christian. You're at your closest. You're the most near. You have the most grace. And you want to give the most of your love when we are weak. I pray that my brothers and sisters would go to you, flee to you, and run to you now. Lord Jesus, as we sing this final song, I pray that no matter where my friends and brothers and sisters are here, are, when they sing this song to you, and trust that you are near, and in you is a pathway to a strength, even in the midst of being beset by messengers of Satan and calamity and insults, and even being beset by our own weakness. You come and pick us up and turn New Hope Church into an odd and beautiful and strange community. Uh, we know there's not going to no longer be any more weaknesses because we don't believe in zap theology. We believe in the gospel. Would you make us a beautiful community? In this next chapter, as Pastor Young comes and all these new things happen, would you call a people to you to be this kind of a people? and to laugh and to cry with the strength that can only come through weakness, the strength of God through the cross. In Jesus' name.